Welcome to episode nine of the Climate Vanguard podcast. Um, Tofu is your best friend. This podcast series tracks the progress made in setting up Climate Vanguard, a radical youth-led research institute that illuminates the systemic drivers of environmental breakdown and advances the radical research needed to arrest the climate and ecological collapse. We cover ups and downs, successes and failures here at all. It should also be noted that we publish every other Wednesday. On this week's episode, we'll be build on the last episode as we discuss another pillar of our content framework, a land and agricultural revolution. Woo! Joining us to outline this issue area is one of Climate Vanguard team members, Reese Waters. Reese is a part of our communications team and is currently working with the rest of the team to build out our social media strategy. In addition, Reese is in the last year of his undergraduate degree studying classics, focusing specifically on archaeology, and is set to pursue a master's degree at Cambridge next year. Reese, great to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on the podcast, guys. Very excited. So first, maybe let's jump off by um, discussing some context as to why this is a pillar of our content framework, why there is a deep need to have a land and agricultural revolution. We're gonna run through some statistics that hopefully capture why a land and agricultural revolution is so necessary and has to be part of this transition framework towards a post-capitalist habitable future. So the agriculture industry is responsible for somewhere between 14.5 to 51% of total emissions. Now this is a huge range here between these two numbers and it's just based on how one calculates the impact of the agricultural industry. However, even in taking the lower end of that boundary, one can easily understand that the agricultural industry is among the core changes that must come to be if we are to preserve a habitable future. So I guess diving into how can we better understand the impact of the agriculture industry beyond just that percentage of emissions it contributes. So more than 80% of farmland is used for livestock. However, livestock produces just 18% of food calories. Just from that perspective, you can understand that there can easily be large changes which deal with the impact of the agriculture industry. I, I just wanted to jump in here because the next statistic is personally one of my favorites. Jump in. Because it just paints the absurdity of the agricultural industry. So 60% of agricultural land is dedicated to beef production, yet it only accounts for 2% of global caloric intake. So if you were to switch away from industrial beef to plant-based or non-ruminant proteins, such as beans and pulses, that would free up 11 million square miles of land, which is equivalent to the size of the US, China, and Canada combined. If you were to reforest that area, you could draw down around eight gigatons of carbon per year, which is approximately 20% of emissions. It's uh, it's incredible. It's incredible incredible to understand how dismantling Certain, at least certain aspects of the agricultural industry can also have such a positive impact. Like we're not only talking about dismantling part of an industry or an entire industry, um, but we're also talking about the positive impact that that can have. And that aspect of this is super exciting and super um, empowering when it comes to the prospect of and the potential held within a land and agricultural revolution. And I guess these last two statistics really frame this particularity of the agricultural industry, a more nuanced perspective that it is particularly our farming of livestock, of animals, that has a disproportionate impact on our environment. And another absurd statistic is that 
there are 23 billion, billion with a B, chickens living on Earth at with any given time, and that humans consume 65 billion chickens per year. And I think this kind of just shows on a planetary scale how many animals under human control there are. In fact, by mass, humans and their livestock account for 96% of total living mass. Only 4% are wild animals. And again, you know, the, the production of animal products is only increasing. And based on this increasing impact from the agricultural industry, specifically through animal agriculture, governments need to reach peak animal product consumption by 2030, according to the UN. Yeah, so <laughs> I guess this has been a slurry of of statistics, but I think they're really, really effective in framing the scale of this industry. I mean, that sort of statistic, which weighs the, the mass of wild animals versus those that are held in captivity or on farms is astonishing. 96% the chickens is astonishing. The impact that our control over animals in this way is having on the environment is astonishing. So I think that that sort of frames the problems with this industry. And I think they become pretty quickly to see through these statistics. Um, but I think that we can also just describe a little bit more about how this is a super important pillar of transition. I mean, agriculture is an important thing to focus on because quite simply food is important. I mean, it's a universally agreed and cross-cultural element of you think a good is, life. You think food is important? I think it's pretty That's important. That's a hot take. I know. I know. It's pretty <laughs> incendiary. Some of our listeners might get a little riled up by that, but food is important. So I think from that perspective, it's understandable why this should be one of the pillars of transition. And also, I think as we were just sort of touching on before, this transition, this revolution really actually holds the power to be a, a force for good. So we can actually take such a, an industry that has such a negative impact on our world right now and transform it into a, a positive impact. By going through this revolution, we have the opportunity to increase our resilience to environmental breakdown that is already inevitable. It's already baked into our future. We can also create this, like have this industry become a carbon negative industry. So actually an industry that's sequestering carbon rather than contributing somewhere between 14% to 51% of emissions. And that type of transition is super exciting and has to provide hope in some sense. And I think finally, agriculture and land is a really key portal through which we can actually see manage and actually reorient human relationship with the non-human world. And I think that through our podcast, we've described somewhat how that's really at the core of a lot of what uh, the paradigm shift that needs to come to be is combat this human nature divide and actually demonstrate that we are part of this interconnected web of life and we're part of this larger system. And so reconnecting people with their life support systems, which this agriculture and land revolution would do, would go a long way in actually having some sort of cognitive transformation. So I think that what we just described is that little, currently the agricultural industry is extremely damaging. However, there are real sort of signs of potential held within this. And if we are able to institute a true land and agricultural revolution, the positive potential for change is really, really exciting. So hopefully that frames why this is an important pillar of our, of our content strategy. It's extremely important. And actually there's so many ways, I mean, that we can't even cover in this podcast, especially to do with land and what we're seeing with offsets right now and land grabbing and continuing to dispossess ancestral lands from indigenous peoples. So it even extends beyond just food production. There are elements of justice deeply baked yeah. into this. I mean, yeah, land justice. And just to touch on your point about the paradigms, it, it's so essential because once humans understand that they are part of this web of life, 
then they'll realize that the exportation of nature, the exportation of animals, and the degradation of our planetary life support systems will inevitably harm humans. Once you kind of break down that cleavage, that artificial binary, then it all makes sense. And when you have that cognitive revolution, once you start seeing the world in a different way, that's when real tangible changes happen in our system. For sure. Reese, get in here. Give me your thoughts. Throw some shit at us. I think one thing that I've read that's very interesting is a quote by Wendell Berry. And he's a really well-known agrarian. And he says that eating is an agricultural act. So everyone who eats food, which as Jack very controversially said, is probably all of us, is heavily involved in this agricultural system, which we have. So, you know, you go to the supermarket, whether you're conscious of it or not, you're part of this huge industrial agricultural system. And this year I've been actually having the privilege to work on an organic farm in Winchester, Virginia, Day Spring Farm as a, uh, a lab actually for my sustainable agriculture class. And it's been eye-opening to see just how different production can be in agriculture. So my, uh, my professor, he has a uh, ecologically framed farm. So he's not a certified organic farmer because one thing he very interestingly pointed out is this certification, it's not actually as cut and dry as you might think. For example, a lot of uh, organic farmers, rather than using pesticides for weed control, will actually uh, use like a scorched earth type method where they'll take gasoline and burn the you know, patch of land that they're going to plant on. And this is actually worse for carbon emissions. So he thinks it's very important not just to try to be an organic farmer for the purpose of a certification to put on his product, but for the purpose of the relationship he can have with the people who are actually buying his produce. So he'll talk to his, uh, his customers and say, okay, we like use ecological practices we don't have the certification, but here's why. And that kind of sparks a conversation that makes the people who are going to buy from him a lot more conscious about the actual process that's going on, which I think is what's really important is that, you know, as consumers, like I was previously saying, you know, we're all involved in this, but it's important for us to become conscious of the system we're actually involved in. And I've been amazed too working out there. He's given us produce pretty much every day I've been out there and I've been amazed how different it tastes. So for nice. example, like sweet potatoes, I'll go to the store and I'll buy some sweet potatoes and like, you know, they're great. But then I've, I've tried his sweet potatoes and it's just a completely different flavor. And especially the lettuce, the lettuce I got, I literally got lettuce two days ago, cut it off of the stalk. And it was the most just like intense flavor salad I've ever had in my life. So it's not that this shift to sustainable agriculture is going to really hurt us in the sense that, oh, we're going to have to eat like, you know, little food or blah, blah, blah. But if you actually, you know, eat from a more local area of production, it's going to taste better. It's going to be fresher. It's going to be healthier. I think there's yeah. a lot of benefits to it. That's super interesting, actually. And once you taste some fresh produce that was grown in ecological manner, and you compare that to the tomatoes you buy at Tesco, you realize how fucking shite the produce is in supermarkets that come from corporate agriculture. And it shows kind of the levels, I would say, of once you start embedding yourself in more ecological practices, not only is it better for the planet, but it's also better for people in terms of their health and just your genuine enjoyment of the food. Reese, so working at this farm, have you experienced more of a connection with nature? As in, have you found yourself feeling more intimately connected with the living world? So yeah, I definitely think that when you're out there for, I don't know, I'd probably be out there like, five hours every Friday. That's kind of when we do our lab. And it's, it's actually 
an extremely just relaxing time of my week because I'll have a lot of, you know, hustle bustle to try to like finish deadlines and things like that. But it's nice to just have five hours blocked out where I'll go outside and just relax and not relax in the sense that I'm just sitting there doing nothing, but I'm actually, you know, working with purpose, but it's something that's a lot more fundamental to like basic things, you know, than just like trying to do this deadline for this. It's like, literally we'll go out there and we'll seed, you know, onions. So like we went out there and for three hours, we were just taking onions, planting them in the ground, covering them up. And then we'll come out the next week and we'll see the onions have started to sprout. And it's a really rewarding feeling to go out there and to see, you know, a little bit of, little bit of greens popping up. And it's really cool because, you know, by the end of the spring, we'll be out there and we'll be picking up the onions that we planted. So I don't want to compare it to watching your kid grow up, but it's kind of like my little onion babies are all, all coming up fast. It's pretty cool. Now, one thing too, that we usually think of this dichotomy between the natural world and the human world. But one thing I've realized throughout reading a lot of this, you know, literature on sustainable agriculture is that, you know, our sense of community is very much tied to our environment. And one thing that I've felt maybe even the most of all going out there is that there's a really good sense of like, you know, interpersonal community when mm. you're out there working, because, you know, throughout the week, you may be, you know, doing your work in the library, just sitting alone for a while, but it's nice to just kind of sit out there. And while we're planting, planting seeds or while we're working on like potting plants, we'll be talking to each other. And it's just a really relaxing sense of community. And that's one thing that we've lost in our industrial agriculture system is that sense of community, which I think might be the biggest detriment to humankind. Because, you know, if you have a, a small scale local production line, you're actually going to communicate with your farmer. You're going to have a relationship with people who you're buying from. But now it's just, I'll go to the supermarket, you know, I'll get my stuff, go to self-checkout. You don't even, you don't even connect with anybody. And I think that's something we've really lost, which is going to be- For sure. Huge. I think it's interesting because eating food is such an intimate act and we've become completely divorced from food production. We have no idea where our food comes from. How is it actually produced? Is it exploiting animals? Is it exploiting people in the process? It just ends up on our plate and we accept that. But I feel like that is really corrosive because like you were saying, Reese, we lose that element of community. And also, of course, being involved in the production itself, which is so empowering and begins i think to break down that binary between nature and society i do think this is probably an interesting point though to pivot and actually look at the history of agriculture yeah because for the vast majority of human existence on this planet we were hunter gatherers nomads we didn't actually plant anything yeah. it was a completely different way of life and it's been around for around ten thousand years now and perhaps we can color that in with some context prior to adopting farming humans actually seem to have been a lot healthier. Height was significantly larger. Lifespan was also significantly larger. And it's because when people adopted agriculture as their primary means of sustenance, they focused on the production of grain crops like millet. And they didn't focus on like cultivating a diverse array of food. So they didn't have a lot of variance in their diet. Another thing that's interesting health-wise is once people adopted agriculture, you're doing a lot of repetitive mo movements. So it was a lot worse for people's joint health and things like that, since you're, you're bent over in the field doing the exact same motions. Whereas if you're hunting and gathering, it's a lot more natural movement and it's a lot more varied. Another thing that was really interesting, if you want to bring gender into food production was before the adoption of agriculture, women were responsible for about 70% of caloric intake for families. 
because men would mostly be responsible for hunting large game and foraging, and women would be responsible for hunting and trapping smaller game and also foraging. If you could kill large game, it would be like, let's say 1 million, like 900,000 calories, but not very common. So a lot of times it was smaller game and foraging, which people lived off of. So a lot more of this, like societies were super egalitarian and there was a lot less of a gender divide. And it's actually with the plow, which you need a lot of upper body strength to work, that gender roles actually got extremely exacerbated. So interesting. I think that what you're just describing is the change in our relationship with the natural world had a whole host of changes on how society functioned, not only humans' physical health, but also our cognitive understanding of each other, of our relationship to the natural world. And as you just described, the advent of agriculture around 10,000 years ago, when the climate stabilized in this period called the Holocene, there was a whole host of changes in how society operates. And that history immediately gives you an understanding of how our interaction with the natural world deeply shapes our connection to other people, our personal health, and as we're seeing right now, society's ability to have a, a future impact. There, there's also quite a profound take and the quote I always think of by Yuval Noah Harari, who said that we didn't domesticate wheat, wheat domesticated us. So we moved from a nomadic way of life and all of, so all of a sudden we found ourselves in more a sedentary civilization. He seemed to have suggested that we stumbled upon this type of agriculture. And going off your point, Reese, perhaps that's because a shift in the climate basically allowed for robust produce to grow really easily. And, you know, we realized, hey, this is a bit easier than going and foraging for fruit and berries or trapping small game or even hunting larger game. And then slowly it caught in a vicious cycle. But now we're 10,000 years on in an agriculture sedentary-based civilization, and it's really hard to break out of it. I mean, I don't think we can break out of it realistically. Yeah. And that's not necessarily, I'm breaking out of it is not necessarily the goal of this transition. And it's not the important part of understanding this history, but it's rather to fully understand the impact that our relationship with the natural world has on the way that we are able to function as a society and understand what values are actually not natural to us, but what can be changed, what can we learn from societies that existed before our shift to agrarian or agricultural societies. And I think that one of the huge transformations, one of the huge cognitive shifts was that humans for the first time began to see themselves as different from the rest of the world, which can in some way be tamed or shaped by humans. And so I think that just this sort of historical background in combination with the project of capitalism, which came much, much later, has really shaped what is now the modern agricultural industry. And I think that this sort of a historical perspective provides a really good baseboard to start discussing a little bit more about the food industry right now, which completely values profit over people. And it also just has impacts that are much more wide ranging than just emissions. I think we've focused a lot on the emissions of this industry and its impact on climate, but it's important also to recognize that it's associated with other forms of the current environmental crisis, whether that's through biodiversity loss or acidification of waterways and issues of justice, as Noah mentioned before, in terms of land grabbing, particularly from indigenous communities. And I mean, soil has been depleted for decades and centuries. Yeah. I mean, that's a crisis that nobody even talks about. Yeah. But what happens when climate and ecological breakdown accelerates to a point where we have systemic crop failure and global bread baskets, and there's genuinely not enough food anymore? 
I mean, that's when it really starts to hit home that we are in an environmental emergency. And again, it comes back to that very intimate fact that we need food to survive. Yeah. And once we see in grocery stores or in supermarkets that it's dwindling and it's because of this crisis, that's when it hits home. But by then, I mean, it's not too late, but you're certainly at a very accelerated point that I hope we won't reach. Yeah. I think, I think one thing that's interesting is if you look at human history and you look at a lot of the great collapses of major civilizations, it's all to do with you know, the ability to create enough food to sustain yourself. And it boils down to agriculture. So if you look at the fall of the Roman Empire, a lot of the unrest and like military tensions you're going to see, you know, you look beneath that layer and it's really that there's been tremendous crop failure because of unsustainable agricultural practices. This resulting in, you know, people are hungry and people are hungry, they're angry. So For that's sure. kind 100%. of what it boils down to. For sure. I mean, in history, when bread prices increase, that creates incredible fertile ground. For revolution. for revolution because people are pissed yeah it's like they're already being oppressed and when they can't put food on the table anymore that's when it starts clicking that the type of social contract they're in is completely exploitative and there needs to be radical change quickly yeah and i think that's such an important part of this discussion actually like it, it is inevitable that um our food supplies will become more precarious with environmental breakdown and as well as population continues to grow, of course. And I think it's important that the reaction to that is not to double down on industrial agricultural practices, but recognize that, first of all, that more sustainable methods of agriculture actually have higher yields. And that it's not only about increasing production, that so much food is also wasted in yes, the process. Exactly. That it's not necessarily about increasing the amount of food that we produce. It's about increasing the amount of food that is produced to reach human mouths. And I think that that's something that also needs to be discussed um, in it's, the agricultural. It's, it's so absurd once you start pulling back the layers, because one of the statistics we opened with is that 60% of agricultural land is dedicated for industrial beef production. It accounts for only 2% of caloric intake. And then you add the added layer that 50% of food is wasted. And then you add another layer that 2 million people die of hunger every year. Yeah. They're just and it's these, like it's in these incongruences that are impossible to explain within the system. And you have to start seeing the cracks of the system. It's probably a good place to pivot and talk about what could this land and agricultural revolution transition look like. And this is by no means an exhaustive list. We can't get you'll have to wait for the um, report in the podcast. But these are just some outlines of, for those curious listeners of what this transition could actually look like. So I think it probably becomes pretty obvious that one of the first things that needs to do is a just plant-based food transition that abolishes factory farming. We have to be retooling large agricultural corporations towards an agrarian reform where huge farms are effectively broken down into smaller units that can then be um, regrouped through cooperatives. And so essentially we're trying to give the experience that Reese so eloquently described of his Fridays growing There's little baby onions. onions. Um, <laughs> too many people and the impact of that is so wide ranging. Another part of this transition has to be the wide scale adoption of regenerative agriculture practices. And an important part of this is also is sort of um, parity pricing, which means that farmers don't need to over continue to overproduce food, which they're incentivized to do right now with our current pricing structures, which, which completely favor the large corporations. And it also provides sort of a fair return on labor for rural communities, which are often undercompensated in producing food. Um, and finally, the ecological benefits of non-industrial farming 
can be reflected in this change pricing scheme so that we're actually valuing the work that people are doing to take on regenerative forms of agriculture. And that's super, super important. Yeah. To, to support some of those elements that Jack outlined, we also would need investment and in infrastructure. And we would also, of course, need to end deforestation and catalyze intensive rewilding. I think there are so many overlaps with the food industry and that aspect, especially because you look at the Amazon, it's being chewed up and burned to a crisp, literally for beef production. And again, you come back to the stat that beef is a emblem of elite consumption that isn't accessible to the vast majority of people in the world. So we're burning the literal lungs of the planet, this amazing ecosystem, just to continue corporate animal agriculture, which is furthering the environmental emergency. So deforestation, nature in general has to be protected in an equitable manner that does not kind of dispossess indigenous peoples from their ancestral lands. And it's also fascinating because indigenous people make up around 5% of global population, yet they steward 80% of biodiversity. Yeah, it's not by chance. <laughs> it's not by chance. And you don't want to homogenize indigenous peoples, but more often than not, their cosmology, their outlook on the world is exactly the opposite of the bifurcation of nature and society that is so dominant. And um, I mean, there's, of course, a connection there. Yeah. Is that once you see nature in a certain way that is intimately bound up in what humans do and what a community does, and there's reciprocity, not an extractivist mindset, then you just naturally protect nature and, and make think, sure that it thrives. I think that also just starts to demonstrate the positive impact of restoring land rights for indigenous people who have land stripped away from them. Like what impact would that actually have? Not to mention that that's a fundamental aspect of course. justice is you, you, repatriating you, this land, but you, what impact yeah. would that have on our society? Even beside the environmental context, that should be done anyways, yeah. 100%. But what environment, environmental impact would that have yeah. is really, really exciting to start to think about. And I think that sort of brings us to this last piece of this podcast, which is teasing out the future of what does the world start to look like post land and agricultural revolution. And I think that we've probably done a lot of the work of talking about this implicitly throughout the podcast. But... It's just so exciting to imagine this because the, the potential held within this transformation is so exciting. I mean, returning to local forms of farming, democratically controlled farming, decentralized food production does so many things in terms of community building, reconnecting people with nature, increasing food security. It's such an exciting vision of what can come to be. And I think that's sort of the power in the land and agricultural revolution, which I think contrasts somewhat with last episode where we talked about dismantling the fossil fuel industry, there's power in that. But what we have in this land and agricultural revolution is not only dismantling an industry that currently exists, but the positive potential of that change is really even hard to wrap my head around. You know, I, I'm so excited just thinking about it. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm imagining a just plant-based food transition that everyone in the world has access to healthy, delicious food, that there's food security, which is so, I mean, sorely lacked in today's world. And also, I think once we change away from mechanized corporate farming and we can actually return land to the people, I mean, we can abolish private property, hypothetically, right? It opens up doors for such you, interesting you can, um, renegotiations of how society functions. You, you can return to governing the commons in a sustainable, democratic, egalitarian way. There's yeah, no reason we sure. should be beholden to the laws of capitalist private property. Once you get rid of that restrictive yoke, if you will, the opportunity for small scale, sustainable communes is tremendous. 
And it's a world we can have. It, we can have this world. Yeah. And it gets me so excited thinking yeah. about it because I don't even know. I, I'm just thinking off the top of my brain right now, like the individual sketches of what the future complement to this transition can look like. Yeah. People working, restoring carbon sinks as well. Fire. Fire is sort of like heroes doing this work. And it's just so exciting to imagine that these localized forms of farming will redistribute labor in a really different way than currently exists. But I think that's really exciting. I mean, as Reese just described earlier in the podcast again, I mean, the opportunity for people to engage in local level farming in whatever capacity that might be, large or small, just presents incredible opportunities for community building, for an understanding of our connection with nature that should be seen as a positive thing. Fire. Anyway. Land and agricultural revolution. Revolution. Now. We need it now. Reese. Yeah. But I think that, you know, this like system we have can become a lot more conscious and a lot more, you know, thoughtful. You can have a lot more of an intimate relationship, you know, with the actual production chain of that food. And I think that it really like rests on us getting like local communities, you know, more rooted in like place. Cause once, once you actually have like a actual relationship with people, you treat them in a completely different way. And um, that's what I read actually for class a week ago. It was in this book, Wendell Berry, it all turns on affection. And it was an essay that he wrote, which I thought was really powerful because it was talking about how, you know, when you have affection in anything you do, you approach it from such a more thoughtful perspective that cultivates something, you know, it's sustainable. You care about it. You want to keep it. And if you approach something with just the goal of exploiting it, you know, you're going to, you're going to destroy whatever you touch. So he was saying that in agriculture, we need affection. And that'll really start with, with what I was saying about, you know, like knowing, knowing the people who are growing your food, it's a little more thoughtful. Yeah. I think that's uh, super interesting. It's probably something that people often associate with like, Oh, what is the land agricultural revolution look like? It looks like more affection. But people have to start thinking about this in that way. And I think that that sort of brings us to the end of this podcast. I want to, ah, I think what I wanted to add is to Reese's point that right now we live in a very violent, barbaric system that doesn't even allow us to think of what can be. So I think this act in of itself is revolutionary to imagine a genuinely happy, liberated future. And it gets us so excited. And it's something we can realize. It's not beyond the pale. And in fact, we have to transition to this future. Yeah. Because in the face of climate and ecological breakdown, we don't have any choice. But then again, it's almost this golden opportunity, this crisis to 100% face these festering systemic issues that have been with us for so yeah. long and to genuinely build the world that both people and the planet need. Yeah, I think that's actually such a good point. Sorry, we'll end, but you just got me thinking. Like, I think that what gets me so excited about talking about this particular pillar of transition is that in speaking about it, it becomes so apparent that climate action is not some sort of sacrifice or a negative thing, but it actually holds the potential to build just a better society and a, hap- and a just society where people can feel more emancipated, free, and more human effectively. And I think that that's such a misconception with environmental action is it's framed as a sacrifice in order to, I don't know, save a polar bear on an iceberg. I think that this just provides such a great example and demonstration that that's not what environmental action is. Environmental action fundamentally holds the ability to build a better world, not to mention provide a habitable world. Mm. And I I think that's part of what gets me so excited about talking about this. Mm. Yeah, but there will be struggle. 
For sure. They will be struggling in the short term. And there's actually a really good quote, and I forget who it's by, but environmentalism without class struggle is just gardening. <laughs> That's so <laughs> fine. So, I mean, Jack is completely right. But yeah, I mean, the it, world we we shouldn't acknowledge it. it's going to be an uncomfortable, uh, very uncomfortable. awkward rupture from. But it'll be worth it. Yeah, and again, we don't have, we don't have a choice. So yeah, get, so get the fuck on board. Get on fucking board. <laughs> All right, because we're going. You fucks, we're uh, going. We're going. Uh, <laughs> I think this has been a really fun conversation and almost frustrating from a perspective because there are so many intersectional issues related with the land and agricultural revolution, which we didn't really get into enough on this podcast, which is frustrating, but our listeners will just have to wait for some of our written content, which will come out later, but hopefully this provides some of the outlines and the sketches of what we're thinking about when we talk about land and agricultural revolution and gets our listeners excited about the world that can come to be. And if this podcast did anything, hopefully it just provides people with understanding is like, this is the opportunity to reject living as a virtual character in the metaverse and just plant baby onions with your neighbors. (laughs) <laughs> and if that's not exciting, like, I don't know what the fuck is. I think that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in and catch you on another episode of the Climate Bank. Next episode is episode 10. That's sick.